hello and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Robert Eggers' 2015 film, The Witch. It looks at a New England Puritan family in the 1600s that is exiled from their community. They go to live in a remote, isolated area, and terrifying things begin to happen. The eldest daughter, Thomason, is blamed for these events and accused of being a witch. I talk about witch hunts the feminist aspects of this film, my very personal reaction to the ending, and much more. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. And I just want to say that the Patreon does help me a lot. And I appreciate all of you who are patrons on there. I'm very grateful for that support and it helps me so much. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. Spread the word about me. (laughs) Or you can follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. Yes, I am on social media too much. Links to all my social media accounts are in the show notes of each episode. I won't go on. Here's my episode about Robert Eggers' The Witch. So I want to say that I probably saw this film in 2015 or 2016, around the time that it was released. It had a lot of buzz about it. Eggers won the Best Director Award at the Sundance Film Festival. So it did have a lot of buzz. It was pretty well known, pretty famous when it came out, I would definitely say. And I don't usually watch a lot of horror films, but I do like historical films I like period dramas, things set in the past. I don't watch as many as I used to. I used to really be into like the Jane Austen adaptations and all that. I haven't even seen the recent one with uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who's also in this. I haven't even seen that adaptation of Emma, but I used to really love the Jane Austen stuff when I was younger. I need to eventually watch it. I've never been as into Emma as some of the other ones. Like uh, I really love Northanger Abbey. I like Pride and Prejudice. But I should probably watch more of the Emma adaptations. I haven't done that. So when this came out, it was a really big deal. And this was Anya Taylor-Joy's first film that she had ever done. And I do think it was a breakout role for her. People sort of knew her thanks to this film. But obviously her really, really big breakout role that has seemed to put her on the map is The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Now, I have not seen The Queen's Gambit yet. 
I don't know if I'll watch it or not. I'm not that into TV or TV series. Like when I have extra time, I tend to want to watch a film or to read. I'm not as into television as other people are. If there is a good television show, I'll usually watch it with my mom. But when I'm on my own in my own free time, I don't tend to watch a lot of TV. It's just a problem and I'll start stuff. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, I want to start a TV series. I never finish it. I never go back to it. For a really long time now, I've been wanting to watch Twin Peaks and I know there's a big fandom around Twin Peaks. I am really interested in the film Firewalk with me. I've heard all kinds of great stuff about it, but you really shouldn't watch it unless you watch the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. And I keep wanting to try, but then I'm like, what's the point in me watching the first or second episode and then never going back to it and never actually finishing it? Because years and years and years ago, I did try to watch Twin Peaks. I think I watched the pilot or some of the pilot. I never stayed with it. It's not because I wasn't interested. It's just there's something about television. I don't know. I just don't get into it the way that other people do unless it's like a true crime series or something like that. Or if it's a limited series, a mini series. I love Sharp Objects. Recently I really loved Mare of Easttown. I also like a lot of British television shows because there are fewer episodes and they tend to be longer. So there might be four episodes in a British television show or for the season. Whereas with a lot of American television shows, particularly in the past, you could have 20 episodes in one season. And I just can't do it, y'all. I can't do it. When I was in college, I started watching Felicity with Carrie Russell in it. And I fell really in love with that show. I watched like the first two seasons and then I just stopped. <laughs> I just, I will start a series and then I will never finish it. And then I'm haunted. <laughs> <laughs> but like what happened on Felicity? What happened? I have no idea. I, I don't know because <laughs> I never finish it. So will I watch The Queen's Gambit? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'll watch it with my mom one day and we will experience it. But that's been a really big show for Anya. Like that has put her on the map. I think Emma helped as well. It seems like people have really responded to Emma and have really loved it. So her career recently has really taken off and I think she's she's really good in The Witch. The Witch is the only thing that I've actually seen her in. So this film was really big when it was released. I just want to give a little bit of like behind the scenes making of information. I want to talk about a documentary about the persecution of women under the guise of witchcraft and the witch hunts in Europe, then I will talk about the film itself. But I think all of this information is really important and it helps inform the way that I see the film and the way that I interpret it. So I just want to give some facts about the making of the film, like some little tidbits. Sometimes I like to do this on episodes. I did a lot of research for The Witch. Even research that I'm not even going to use in this episode, I wanted to do as much as possible because I just wanted to know my stuff and I wanted to know about the film, about the period that it's set and all kinds of stuff like that because it's set in the 17th century as we all know. Thomason, the character that Anya plays, was based on a real teenager in Salem. That's what Robert Eggers said and I, I read a lot of interviews that he did 
I watched the extras on the Blu-ray, and all of that will be in the show notes if you want to see any of his interviews, or I mean like read them for yourself. He talks about the film in a really fascinating way, and I will incorporate quotes and stuff like that. I thought it was interesting that Thomason was based on a real girl in Salem. She had fits, and she believed that she was possessed by the devil. I thought that was a really interesting thing to come across. Interestingly enough, historians in Salem, Massachusetts, who have watched The Witch, they have said that it's extremely accurate, that it's probably one of the most accurate films about the period that they've seen. On the Blu-ray for The Witch, there is a Q&A that takes place in Salem, Massachusetts. They showed the film there, I guess in 2015, like when it came out. And they had this panel. Anya was there, Robert Eggers was there, and then some historians were there. And the historians talked about how impressed they were with the detail and how Robert Eggers really got it right. He wanted everything to be made the way that it would have been made in the 17th century. This wasn't even a big budget film. I think I read that it was made for $3 million maybe. I mean, that's not a big budget film, right? But it has the feel of, I think, a good budget. Like, it doesn't feel low budget to me. It does not feel cheap. It feels handmade. <laughs> it feels like a lot of care and attention were put into the film and you can feel it. And I think the historian saying that says a lot, that this is a, a very accurate film they felt. They said usually they'll watch films set in the 1600s and they'll notice all kinds of details that are not correct. But when they were watching The Witch, it wasn't like that at all. Eggers says in that um, Q&A on the Blu-ray, he talked about how he wanted the shots to be really personal, almost as though these were his memories of his Puritan childhood. And in a lot of the interviews, he brought up the same metaphor. He wanted the shots to be personal, almost like he was, like when he was a child in the cornfield with his father, and he could smell the corn, and he could see the mist, and all this stuff. He wanted the film to have that kind of feel. That this is like a real Puritan childhood. And I think he accomplished that. The thing about this film is that I think when you watch it the first time, it doesn't really blow you away. Maybe for some people it blows them away the first time. For me, that wasn't the case. And I've actually heard this from a few people where the first time they liked the film, but it didn't like blow them away. It took like a second or third viewing. And I've heard that from multiple people. And it's the same for me. Um, I'd only seen it once when I chose to do an episode about it. So I just rewatched it for this episode. So this is my second time seeing it. It really just it knocked me out this time like this time I was like oh wow the ending definitely had stayed with me and I love the ending and I'll be talking a lot about the ending in this episode but um like other parts of the film had maybe not stuck with me for some reason I wasn't that like blown away like I said like I wasn't just really amazed by it the first time I think maybe because you don't know what's happening you're and it's very spare 
I think it's a very spare, almost minimalist film. There's not a lot of dialogue, for instance. All of the dialogue is like from the period. It's taken from transcripts and books and it's very accurate. I think maybe it's a very foreign world the world of the Puritans. It's so ascetic. It's so bare. It's so without pleasure or joy at all. <laughs> it's a rough world. It's a brutal world of the Puritans in New England at that time. The film is just really, it's intense, but it's bleak. And he's mixing like realism with the supernatural. I think that's really interesting about this film. The way he mixes like really deep realism the wood, the way the houses are built, the clothing, all of this realism with the supernatural folklore thing of the witch, right? Of the witches and all of that. Something that lived in the Puritan imagination and he's bringing that to life and making that very horrifying. He's bringing this Puritan nightmare to life and he says that in interviews. That's what he was trying to do. So it's such an interesting mix in that way and I think maybe when you watch it the first time you're not sure what to make of it. I, I don't even know if I know what to make of it now that I've seen it a second time. But I do think it's very scary and I think it's very powerful. I don't know if I want to call it feminist. I don't know. I don't know what it means to call a film feminist, to be honest with you. I am a feminist, but I'm always uncomfortable when I'm calling a film feminist. I think there are feminist themes in it. And he says in interviews that that just kind of organically happened. I think whenever you're talking about witches and witchcraft and the persecution and oppression of women, I think feminism is gonna come to the surface in that. I don't know if it's a feminist film, but it made me feel a lot of things as a woman, particularly the ending, but also looking at the life of Thomason and her mother, Catherine. And I'll dig into that as I go on. What I'm trying to say is that with the second viewing, more things jumped out at me. More things resonated with me. I connected with certain things. I noticed more. I had more feelings about the film. You know, I have things that I want to say about it in this episode, obviously. So it's one of those films, like if you're listening to this episode and maybe you've only seen it once, I mean, maybe you already see the brilliance of the film. I, I definitely think it's worth watching it again. And, you know, in this era of the Puritans, the real world and the fairy tale world were very much the same in people's minds. And Edgar says that in interviews. And that's what he's trying to bring to life in the film, I think. Witches were real to these people. Witches were as real as another person right in front of them. Witches did not inhabit some kind of imaginative realm or like they they weren't real. They were. They were like material beings to the people who lived during this time and they were seen as supernatural beings. Eggers is trying to bring that to life for sure. He wants to transport us to the 17th century and it's set in New England and Eggers himself is from southern New Hampshire. So I thought that was interesting. It's set in New England, but it was not really filmed there. Much of the film was done in Canada, in Ontario. I think it was northern Ontario. It took five years to get the film made. And four of those years were spent writing, researching, and trying to get financing for the film. It was a journey for him. But he wanted the research to be 
deep and extensive. And he did. I mean, he learned everything he could about that period. And he also learned about the witch hunts in Europe and the witch trials in Salem and all kinds of stuff to create the film. And I think it shows in the period detail and in the attention to detail that you see in the film. And you don't often see that. This is the only Robert Eggers film that I've seen so far. I know he's become a big deal. A lot of people seem to love The Lighthouse. I've had it recommended to me. I haven't watched it yet, but it does look interesting. I know a lot of people like it and maybe I'll explore it one day. What's interesting is that this film was basically shot in natural light. So the cinematography is is very, I thought it was really powerful. I noticed it much more when I watched the film the second time. Everything is in natural light outside. And then when they do the interior shots, that's the candle flames and you know stuff like that. But they didn't use any kind of artificial lighting. All of it was natural, both inside and out. The music, the soundtrack is by Mark Corvin, and after I watched the film, I actually went and listened to the soundtrack on Spotify, and I love the soundtrack. It's it's dark, it's dissonant, it's just perfect. I think it perfectly captures the era. Robert Eggers said that he listened to a lot of 17th century music and that he wanted to use that in the film. And then they have that original soundtrack with the singing and the voices. It's a dark soundtrack, but I like it. I'm recording this in October of 2021, so we are in the autumn season, and I really love when autumn comes around. This is like my favorite season for sure. I love witchy music, and so I have had the witch soundtrack going a little bit. I made a playlist. I always have to make playlists. This is all I do now. I should be doing so many other things with my life and instead I just end up making a bunch of playlists all the time. I make a playlist every day. <laughs> I find a theme and I've got to go with it. My recent playlist is the witchy playlist so I was putting together all kinds of witchy songs that I love and enjoy and the witch soundtrack was definitely on there. Eggers was very inspired by The Shining. Stanley Kubrick's film. I actually watched that for the first time this year. I wasn't thinking a lot about The Shining as I watched The Witch, but maybe people who are more obsessed with The Shining and have watched it a lot, maybe they'll notice those parallels. I've only seen The Shining once and it was months ago, so I wasn't really paying attention to a lot of the parallels between the two films, but it was a big influence for him. And Eggers has many influences as a filmmaker, and you see them in this film. He's inspired by the Dutch Golden Age, by Flemish painters, by Visconti, Kubrick, Carl Theodore Dreyer, Ingmar Bergman, and the painter Goya. So you see all of that in here. I absolutely saw the Dutch Golden Age because I myself love the Dutch Golden Age. I love uh, Vermeer and Rembrandt. And in those interiors of the house and with the candlelight and all of that, I think you could absolutely pick up on the Dutch Golden Age. And sometimes when the family was at the table eating and they were just illuminated by the lamplight, I was very reminded of 
a painting by Vincent van Gogh in his early period before he went to the south of France and had this explosion of color on his canvases. He had darker canvases um, when he was younger, when he was starting out. And he has one called the Potato Eaters. And it's sort of a group of people they're eating. And I think they're illuminated by like candlelight or a kerosene lamp or, you know, whatever they used back in those days in the eight, that's the 1800s. The film is set in the 1600s. But it did remind me of that painting by Van Gogh for some reason. Something about the light and the darkness. The film is filled with the darkness. That's what this film is really about. These dark recesses of our own minds and the mythology and the folklore and the demons and the nightmares that we have created as a culture. The way that we've taken this idea of the witch and constructed all of that you know, constructed what it means to be a witch. What is a witch? It wasn't just an idea to people. It was a true, real, physical threat and danger in their lives. It was as real to them as heaven and hell. Heaven and hell were very physical back then too. People believed these things were real. It was all they knew and it was what they were taught. And that is the key to understanding the film and to understanding the history of what happened with the killing of women who were accused of witchcraft. And Eggers made a good point in one interview where he was like, yeah, it was about fearing women's power, of course. That is part of the the mythology of the witch or the narrative of the witch, right? Of women's sexuality and their power. But it was more than that. It was that the witch was a real being. The witch was a true danger and threat in the physical world. She didn't just exist as an idea. She existed as a reality for the people living back then and for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because the witch trials and the witch hunts of Europe lasted for, for several centuries. And that's what I want to talk about now. I love this documentary. This documentary is the reason that I chose to talk about The Witch. Earlier in 2021, I got interested in this documentary called The The Burning Times by Donna Reed. It was done in 1990. It's part of a trilogy about women and spirituality. And I highly, highly recommend this trilogy. I've started to get really interested in feminist spirituality with the ideas of like the sacred feminine, the divine feminine. I'm not going to go on about it, but it's tied to sort of pre-Christian times, the times of paganism, the time before monotheistic patriarchal religion took over. We're talking about thousands thousands and thousands of years ago before Christ, you know, before Christianity and before these monotheistic religions, there were there was a time before this patriarchal culture took over. This trilogy with, on women and spirituality by Donna Reed goes into all of that. There's no way I could summarize it in this episode, but it is about goddesses, about the worship of goddesses in pagan times, and about the way that women were revered in, you know, thousands of years ago before Christianity and all of that came along. So the first part of the trilogy is called The Goddess Remembered, and I love it. It's so fascinating to learn about the worshiping of goddesses and the way that women were respected and revered in more pagan times. And then the second part of the trilogy is The Burning Times. 
which is about the witch hunts in Europe that took place for hundreds of years. And then the third uh, film in the trilogy is called Full Circle, and it talks about modern feminism when it was made in the early 1990s, about the issues facing women under patriarchy and living in a patriarchal culture. It's a wonderful trilogy made in the early, early, like the late 80s, early 90s. Still relevant. It still resonates. And I highly recommend it. I think I'm always searching for some kind of spirituality in a weird way. I'm not religious. I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I am an atheist. The thing is, is I'm not religious, but I am in search of spirituality. And that's hard to explain, maybe. I don't believe in anything supernatural. I don't believe in, like, energy or... I'm not even into astrology, really. I'm not into crystals and all that. I feel like when you talk about spirituality, it's always attached to the new age stuff. And I'm not judging anybody who's into that stuff. I'm saying for me personally, it's not something that I think a lot about or that I'm into. But I am always searching, I guess, for like some kind of spirituality. And so earlier this year, I came across this idea of feminist spirituality, which is tied to like pagan times and learning about the goddesses and learning about women from history. And it's about being more connected to nature and to yourself. I don't know. It's just really interesting, the whole idea of the divine feminine and the way that women were revered in in the past before everything just went to shit, before the monotheistic religion started and the patriarchy really started and capitalism and just all this terrible things that have oppressed and harmed women for centuries now. And so I've gotten interested in it. I just wanted to mention it in case it interests other people. My entry point and my gateway for it was this trilogy and learning about goddesses, learning about the way women were respected in the past, the way that women were murdered when they were accused of witchcraft and all of the way that witchcraft was used to kill and oppress women by accusing them of it. You know, women were often accused of witchcraft because they were deviant in some way. Many of these women were midwives or they were involved in women's health care. They were poor sometimes or old or widowed or unmarried. These were often vulnerable women in that way. So all of this is from the burning times. And I do want to talk about some of this because I think it's relevant and I think it's fascinating. You can always fast forward if it's not interesting. Women were often branded witches by the Christian church church because they were healers. Often it was very connected to women who were healers or who were involved in something connected to women's bodies and health. Many of these women who were healers, they were continuing the traditions of the pre-Christian days, the days of, of paganism. And the church found this very threatening. And so they They ended up going after these women. The word witch, I thought this was really interesting in the documentary. I don't know how accurate this is. This is what the documentary says. The word witch comes from the Anglo-Saxon root wick, which means to bend or shape. This is according to a woman named Starhawk in The Burning Times. And she talks about how witches could bend or shape consciousness, and then they could shape events in the real world. And this is what made them dangerous, right? Is that witches were active participants in the world. They were healers, or they were often involved in women's reproductive help, or women's everyday lives as midwives, healers, And I just thought that was really interesting that it is connected to 
women who are seen as having some kind of weird power or strange, dangerous power. In the Middle Ages, the witch hunts really ramped up, and 85% of those who were killed were women. There were men accused of witchcraft and who were killed for it, but the vast majority, 85%, were women. Between the 15th and the 17th centuries, thousands of women were burned at the stake for the crime of witchcraft. And anybody could really accuse anybody. <laughs> there was no rhyme or reason for it. A lot of people were accused. It's hard to know the exact numbers of how many women were killed during these witch hunts. Some say up to 9 million. I don't even know if that's accurate. But possibly millions of women were murdered because of the witch hunts. And they were accused of something that they weren't. As we know in the modern period now in 2021, witches are not real. Witches don't exist. These women were not witches. They were just women who happened to be midwives or healers or widows or old or unmarried or whatever. And they were murdered. They were burned at the stake for that because there was something that they did that was deemed dangerous. Often these women were even revered in their villages and the priests felt very threatened by them. Think about it. The midwives were lessening women's pain in childbirth. But the documentary says that that pain was supposed to be a punishment for what Eve did. For the sin of Eve. They didn't want women taking away other women's pain during childbirth. These women were intervening in sexual reproduction by giving birth control and abortion to women. These were dangerous women, particularly the ones that were involved in health care for women. New laws were introduced that said if a woman tried to cure, if she tried to be involved in healing, but she had not studied, um, she was a witch. And she had to die. Now, a lot of women, most women, were barred from universities. So this is how the medical profession or the medical establishment started and how it got so dominated by men is that they kept women out of these universities. And this made it so that the medical profession would be dominated by men. I mean, this really happened. The rise of the witch hunts, it's not totally clear what caused it, but the plague came in the 1500s. There were lots of epidemics for the next few hundred years in Europe. People did go to women for help during this time. And the female population started to increase from the 15th to the 16th century, maybe because more men were dying in war. Women were outliving and outnumbering men, which means more women weren't finding husbands. They were becoming more independent, and this was threatening. Now, women didn't have rights to property or inheritance at this time. They relied on charity for the most part. But if a woman did have property, they immediately became suspect. They were also suspect if they were old, if they were widows, if they were spinsters. All of these women were vulnerable to being accused of witchcraft. They were easy scapegoats for the plague and for the diseases and epidemics that were ravaging a lot of rural villages. And the witch hunts happened exclusively in rural areas of Europe. That's where it was taking place. These women were being attacked in the rural areas. Institutions just felt very threatened, and it was easy to blame these women. It was easier to blame witches than the Pope or the bishop, or the priests, or the religious establishment for all the woes, for all the horrible things that were happening in Europe 
during those centuries. So the witch became a scapegoat. The witch became something to blame any time bad things were happening. That's why I'm talking about this, because this is what happens in the witch in the film, is that bad things are happening in this family, and the witch becomes the blame. The witch becomes the scapegoat, and Thomason becomes the scapegoat, particularly since she's going through puberty and she has started her period and she's going from a young girl into a woman, right? It's always a transition phase for women when they start their periods. She becomes the scapegoat when all of these bad things start happening. So in a way, this family is a microcosm of something that actually happened throughout Europe during the witch trials and the witch hunts, is that when bad things happened, Women, women and witches <laughs> got blamed for it, for sure. And that's what happens to Thomason. And not all the women who were burned as witches were old. Women of all ages were killed. And some were even children. That's heartbreaking as well. Something I learned from this documentary that was so interesting to me is that hag, the word hag, it used to mean a woman who had sacred knowledge. Now it's a put down, right? It's used to attack women who are older, who are not seen as attractive or desirable. Women, I guess, who are unpleasant in some way. They're called hags. But what a lot of people don't realize, because a lot of this knowledge was buried once Christianity became so dominant in Europe, so much of the pre-Christian world has been buried so much of this knowledge about goddesses, about the way that older women used to be revered, all of it has been buried because of the dominance of Christianity. I mean, the, the victor tells the story of history. And that's what's happened with this, is that so many people don't even know that, oh, hag used to mean a woman with sacred knowledge. I mean, isn't that beautiful? That we used to respect women who had knowledge. We used to respect women who were healers and who were continuing the knowledge and the and they were handing down knowledge they were continuing the traditions that they had learned and they were helping other women and like isn't that beautiful and we don't even know any of that that's why I love that trilogy by Donna Reed goddess remembered the burning times in full circle all of them are on YouTube find them and watch them. It was mind-blowing and it was beautiful. That's what I'm loving about this feminist spirituality is just connecting to myself as a woman and connecting to all the other women who came before me in history, including these women who were murdered in Europe for witchcraft. These are our ancestors as women. It's so beautiful to connect with that knowledge and to connect with that history and to know what happened to these women because their stories haven't really been told that much. And it's really beautiful to know that, oh, there was a time before patriarchy. There was a time when women were not treated this way, were not oppressed and dominated and seen as sinful and less than, and that they were created from Adam's rib. Like the Adam and Eve story is very powerful, where a woman where women are blamed for the downfall of the world. And we have shouldered that for centuries now, millennia since Christianity began or, or since the monotheistic religions began, right? The Old Testament and Genesis and all of this. This is what women have lived with. This is what's been put on us. And the witch, the witch is the perfect embodiment of the oppression and persecution of women, but also 
our power and our knowledge. And that's also what's so threatening. The witch is scary, but you're also drawn to the witch. The witch is outside of everything in a way. You know, she's outside of desire. She's outside of all of these constructs of what a woman should be. The witch breaks all the rules. The witch is deviant. Her deviance is the reason she was targeted or the women were targeted because they were single or they were widows or they were old or this or that. They broke the rules in some way. I mean, these are the rebels of history, some of these women, because they didn't fit the mold and they didn't play by the rules all the time. And I just think this knowledge is a beautiful thing. And these women were murdered. They were killed and no one no one kept their story going. There's so many of these women will never know their names. And they were killed because they were women, pretty much. And they were dangerous and they were scary because of their power. There was they were seen as powerful in a frightening way. They could heal or they had property or whatever. They were old. And that was dangerous because they were outside the bounds. They defied what was expected of women. Old women were revered back in the pagan times because they passed down ancient knowledge to other people. I love it. And it is true that women did used to meet in groups in the forest. I thought that was really interesting when I was watching the documentary, is that that's what happens in The Witch at the very end. That did happen. Women would meet in the forest to talk, to share knowledge, to be together, I guess, for whatever reason. They would perform rituals. They would share news, all kinds of stuff. But gradually that started to be turned into something evil for women to gather together in the woods. And you see that fear come to life in the woods of like, oh my gosh, a group of women together. Oh, oh my Lord, right? Often the women in this this film are isolated. So it is very powerful to see all those women, to see the witches gathering together at the very end and being together in front of the fire. There's something very powerful about that, I think. What a lot of people don't know about the witch hunts is that they were a business. And the same happened in Salem when the witch trials happened. There, This was profitable, that's the missing thing that a lot of people don't understand. These witch hunts and the attacking of witches or attacking of women under the guise of witchcraft, there's a lot of reasons for it, but there was also a profit motivation involved here. There was bookkeeping, there were charges, the lawyers made money, the judges made money, the people who locked up the witch, who fed her, who escorted her to the courthouse. All these people made money off of this. People made money. And often the witch herself had to pay for her own trial. They would take her property, her assets, and she would be expected to pay the bill for her own execution, her own murder. A lot of people don't know this. That's why this documentary, if you love this film and you like, say you like other films about witches, I do. I love I Married a Witch and Bell, Book, and Candle. I just watched Bell, Book, and Candle a few months ago or a few weeks ago. I liked a lot of it. I didn't love the ending, but I really loved Kim Novak in it. I said I Married a Witch, right? A lot of people love Practical Magic or The Witches of Eastwick. There's all kinds of witchy films out there. Well, if you like witches and you're interested in them and all of that, then watch this documentary. I learned so much. I thought it was interesting when they talked about the torture of women who confessed to witchcraft. They often did confess because they were tortured terribly in horrible, horrible ways. And there was no way you could withstand the torture. 
You just couldn't. And these women would confess about saying that Satan came to her and that they knelt before a goat. I thought that was interesting. Apparently the goat is associated with the devil and with Satan. And you see that in the witch with Black Philip. The goat becomes this symbol of the devil. And once the devil became this popular concept, um, there also became this idea that women were allied with the devil. That fed this mythology too about witches or this folklore. I'm not sure what to call it. I guess folklore would be the only way to talk about it, right? Women were seen as being more vulnerable to Satan because we're irrational and we're emotional and also we're sexual. We are seen as not having control over ourselves. That is the way that women are oppressed, is, are these ideas, these very harmful ideas that we're too emotional, we're sexual, we're sinful, and we're therefore dangerous. And when a woman signed a contract with the devil, it was said that she would perform a sexual act with him. And this is what women confessed to. But really, women weren't really confessing. There was a handbook that a lot of the people who interrogated these women had and they would have the women confess to these stories about having sex with Satan and all kinds of stuff, right? And that's how these stories were created, was through this handbook. It's not like these women were were really confessing to anything. They didn't do any of this stuff, but they were told to say these things. There were books about how to burn witches as well. It's horrifying. I mean, millions of women probably died this way because they were accused of witchcraft, and yet there are no monuments to these women. There are no memorials to all the women who were murdered during the witch hunts in Europe for several centuries. Thousands and thousands of women, possibly millions, we don't know for sure. We have really no memory of them. Like, their stories are not told. They are reduced to a caricature. That's why I really like the witch, because the witch is like, it goes beyond the stereotype or the caricature of the witch, and it gives us what the Puritans really thought a witch was. That is what this film is. It is, and Edgar said this in an interview, it is like the Puritan nightmare come to life. And that's what he did. This is what they really thought women were doing who were witches. They were bathing in baby's blood. They were on a broom. Their hair was long and stringy. They were old or they were hags. They were frightening. They were monstrous and grotesque. Like all of this stuff and it's brought to life in this film like the ultimate horror the ultimate fear of what they imagined these witches were and what these women were really doing at night the terror that they were creating these people lived in fear of this thing they created this idea of a witch that idea was so powerful that it led to the murder of so many women for centuries and it still is with us today all of that misogyny and all of that sexism is still with us today this idea that women are too emotional and they're sexual and they're sinful and they're they're dangerous all of that's still with us to some extent not as bad as the 1600s but it's not easy being a woman in the world so i wanted to talk about you know all of that. I think that documentary is fascinating. And now I'll talk about the film The Witch.
Now I want to talk about the film, directed by Robert Eggers, as we all know, released in 2015. Anya Taylor-Joy plays Thomason. Ralph Innocent is the father, William. Kate Dickey is the mother, Catherine. Harvey Scrimshaw is Caleb. Ellie Granger is Mercy. And Lucas Dawson is Jonas. So it's about this family that is exiled from their community. They lived on this plantation or in this community in New England. Uh, Mother, the father, and five children, right? And there's baby Sam who vanishes early on. He's the first child to disappear. And so this family's exiled from their community and they go to live on their own in this remote, isolated part of New England in the wilderness. And they only have themselves to rely on. And as soon as they get exiled and they're in the wilderness, basically, That's when crazy stuff starts to happen and disturbing things start to happen that they can't make sense of. And they start to create some kind of sense or to try to understand it through blaming the witch, blaming a witch. And then they start to blame Thomason and believe that she's in league with the devil, with the witches, and Thomason starts to get blamed for this stuff as well. And she's present for quite a few of the things that end up happening. Whether it's Sam disappearing or when Caleb vanishes and then reappears, she's present for all of that. And she becomes the scapegoat in a lot of ways. It's a simple story. It's a very simple story in that way. I think Eggers in interviews talked about how it's also about a family. I mean, at its heart, that's what this film is about. It is about a family, and I think it's about a family really falling apart and disintegrating. Instead of being there for each other, supporting each other, they turn on each other because life, their life is so hard and so difficult. I think it's hard for us to imagine in the modern period that we're living in what life was like back then. But I do think that a film like The Witch gives us insight. And it gets us as close as we're probably ever going to get because we don't have photos, we don't have video, we don't have any kind of proof like that or evidence of what life was like back then. But this film, through its verisimilitude and its historical accuracy, gives us something. It gets us closer to the truth or the authenticity or the reality of what life must have been in the 1600s. I mean, think alone about the darkness. You don't have electric light. You don't have street lamps. You don't have any lamps at all. You have candlelight and you have the sunlight and everything else is darkness when they're, when you don't have those things. So it had to be a scary time. You have people dying very young from illnesses There's a lot of death. There's all kinds of things. This is a time in history that it's scary to be alive. And it's hard to be alive because you don't understand things the way that we understand them now. You do not understand what is going on. And they are searching for something to blame. They're searching for a way to understand it. And the witch becomes the figure. The witch becomes the scapegoat. The witch becomes the thing to blame to fear and to blame with um, with all of this. So I wanted to start with something a little bit personal before I talk fully about the film. I briefly lived in New England for about five or six months during the winter. It was brutal for me. 
I'm from the South. In the South, we're not used to that kind of winter. We're not used to feet and feet of snow. We're not used to constant snow. We're not used to any of that. We're not used to the kind of cold that you have in the Northeast and in New England. There would be cold advisories that if you were outside too long in those temperatures, you could get frostbite. There's nothing like that in the South. We get snow every now and then. It's not a constant thing at all. We do not go much lower than like the 20s or 30s. And in New England, when I was there, I think Snowmageddon happened when I was there too. That was fun. Not, not really. I still have nightmares about my days in New England for like six months. It was terrible. I was so miserable. I think that was one of the most miserable times of my life. I hated it there. I'm, I really do apologize to any of you who live up there and you love it. The fall was pretty when the leaves changed, but the snow and the cold, the darkness, oh, that was a dark time in my life when I was living there. So I have really negative feelings about it. But what I wanted to say is that something that stays with me about my brief time in New England are the woods. And we lived, me and my family, for the few months that we were there, we lived in an apartment. And there was like the apartment, and then there was a field, and then there were woods. Now, growing up in the South, I love the forests. I've always been an outdoors person in that way when I was growing up. I loved being outside. I loved being in nature. I loved being in the woods and the forests. They were a magical, beautiful, fun place to be. And I always loved being in the woods with my friends when I was a little girl, running around and picking up the leaves and all kinds of stuff. I loved it. The woods in New England, in the wintertime at least, were absolutely creepy and eerie and spooky. And I remember I had my dog Boomer at that time. Boomer died earlier this year in May. That was really sad. I've talked about it a little bit in some past episodes, but he passed away. We had him for 10 years and he was a really sweet dog. And so when I was in New England, I would take Boomer outside to use the bathroom. And usually there was snow all over the ground and ice in the parking lot. That was fun. Oh, I was miserable. Um, and so I would take him outside in the snow and I would stand out there in the dark, usually, sometimes under the moonlight. I still remember standing outside looking at the woods on these snowy evenings and it was like the hairs on my body stood up. Those woods felt so haunted and dark. I still can't put what I felt into words when I would look at those woods. It was palpable. It was this physical darkness that I still can't even put into language. There was something threatening about the woods for me. I would wonder what lurked inside of all those tangled branches. What could come out of that deep foreboding darkness? It's never left me that feeling. It felt haunted. That land felt haunted. I was not in Massachusetts. I was not in Salem. So I, I can't say that I felt the spirits of the of the women who were murdered, right? The women who were killed in the witch trials or something. But I felt history. I felt something very dark on that land. And there could be people who come to the South and feel the same. We have a very bloody, violent history of racial murder, 
of lynchings and all kinds of things. And you could see that in the landscape or you could feel it in the landscape. I don't know what I felt in New England. I don't know what I felt in those woods, but it was dark and it was intense and it's never left me. And so re-watching The Witch, it just stayed with me. It just absolutely stayed with me. It was very weird to be in New England because I've always been interested in the Salem witch trials and stuff. I think Shirley Jackson, Shirley Jackson's one of my favorite writers. I love The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle. I believe she wrote a short book about the Salem trials. So I remember reading that book by Shirley Jackson. I remember reading The Crucible when I was in school, even though they say that's not really historically accurate. But the Salem witch trials have always interested me a bit. I don't know as much as I'd like to. So to be in New England was very interesting. To be in that landscape I don't know. I feel like history haunts that place. I think it, I think history haunts those woods in some way. I don't know why, but I felt that. So I do feel like in this film, Eggers is, he's looking at the darkness that lurks in the past. And I do, I'm surprised there are not more horror films set during the Puritan times because it's such a dark time and, and it's scary and it's intense, right? People believed this stuff was real. And it was a creepy time, I think. There's no light. Life is really difficult. There's a lot of death. It does surprise me we don't have more films or more horror films set during like the Puritan days or the Salem witch trials or something. We have films about witches, but we don't necessarily have historical films about the witch trials. So I think it was a pretty scary time. So I want to talk about the idea of the witch in this film. What does the witch embody? What is the witch doing? She is the thing that haunts the film. This this witch or multiple witches that we see throughout the film. And Eggers talked about the figure of the witch in a lot of interviews. He did an interview with the AV Club and he says that the witch quote, embodies men's fears and ambivalences and fantasies about women and female power. Um, in that period, in this extremely male-dominated society, the evil witch is also women's fears and ambivalences about themselves and their power, unquote. I think that's really interesting where he brings that up in interviews where it's not just about, the witch doesn't just embody men's fears of women, but perhaps women's own fears of themselves and what they've been taught to fear. That's the thing is that women back then were taught that they were sinful. They were taught that they were inferior, that they were not on the same level of men. But they were also taught that they had had this sexual power over men, but they didn't necessarily know what to do with that, right? And they felt ashamed of it. And so I thought it was interesting that he brought up that the witch could embody both of those things not just men's ideas of women but women's own ideas and women's fears of what they are and this internalized maybe internalized misogyny or something that like I, oh I must be evil it reminds me of a scene early on with Thomason where she's praying to God and she's talking about all her sins and all the terrible things that she's done she talks about how she deserves to be punished for it so women themselves at this time, they believe what they're told about themselves, that they are evil, that they are sinful, 
that they lure men, right? Or they, you know, they do all these things to men. So I thought that was just an interesting thing to think about, that maybe the witch could embody that as well. Not just how men feel, but how women have been taught to feel about themselves. And maybe the witch is also a figure of like, what happens to you if you step out of line? In a lot of ways, the film, what the film is doing, and maybe this is, to me, this is what makes it unique and so unexpected, is that it's taking the whole idea of the witch seriously. And I feel like Eggers is saying, what if witches were real? What if these witches were real? What would they look like? What would they sound like? Right? What would they do? And he's bringing, like I said earlier, the whole Puritan nightmare the whole Puritan imagination. He's like getting into the Puritan imagination and saying and bringing to life what they truly feared about the witch. And that's who we see in the film. He's taking us into that nightmare. And what we're seeing in the film is like these tales come to life, these nightmares made real. They really believed that women covered themselves in blood, that they had sex with Satan, that they flew on broomsticks, that they would go in the woods and dance naked and all of this stuff. This is the Puritan nightmare come to life. And that's what he gives us in the film. The ultimate villain is this witch. I think what's interesting is the way the film mixes the violence of the witch and the liberation of the witch. Because it is a violent film. It is a bloody film. It's a terrifying film. But at the end of it, the witch is actually the path to freedom for Thomason. Or you could argue the devil is, that Satan is, that she signs the contract with. He's her access to freedom, possibly. But I think the other women that she joins, they're her path to freedom. And so it's interesting to me all these contradictions that the witch embodies. The witch is both sexualized and demonized. You know, witches were often seen as hags and old women, but then they were also very sexualized, and there was something very sexual about their representations. They're naked. They, they never have clothes on, right? Their bodies are always exposed, but their bodies are not necessarily beautiful. You know, they don't look like... Uh, models or something like that, but they are naked and they are sexualized at the same time that they're seen as like hags and gross and grotesque. I think that's an interesting contradiction. The witch is seen as both ugly and alluring. So I think people projected all kinds of things onto the witches. All these terrors and desires, all these fears about the female body, about female power. Think about when Caleb goes into the woods, right? And the witch is this voluptuous woman who seduces him and then suddenly turns into the old hag figure. The witch in the film embodies all of these things. Terror and sexuality, the grotesque, the horrific, but also the sexual. And I I personally just find that fascinating because people are contradictory. I mean, we're filled with all kinds of contradictions, aren't we, as human beings? And the film brings those contradictions to life just in the figure of the witch and all of the 
the ways that she's constructed and thought about, which is really were an explanation for the inexplicable. They were the scapegoat, the ones who got blamed for when these frightening and really terrible things would happen. And I think something that's really terrifying about this film is how small the human beings are in it, how little control they have over their lives. They can't control the weather or nature or what happens to their crops. The women have no control over what happens to them in any way. And they're exiled from the community and they go into the wilderness, basically. And I love the way the film composes the shots of the woods. I didn't talk about that earlier. The shots of the woods are fascinating to me where they take up the entire screen. I mean, they're so massive, right? These trees... And often the family, like you'll see one member of the family contrasted against all these these trees. And they look so small against the woods. The wilderness looks vast and the woods look, the trees in the woods look massive. And the family members, they look so tiny and so small. And really, the woods become a site of terror. That's what's also interesting about New England. Like I said, when I was growing up in the South, I loved the woods. I love playing in the woods. But in this film, the woods are a place of mystery and terror because it's in the woods that all these bad things happen. The baby vanishes. Baby Sam vanishes. Caleb gets seduced and abducted. So the woods become a very terrifying place where inexplicable things can happen at any minute. And Catherine, I think Catherine shows the mother, Catherine shows a fear of the woods. She doesn't like when William takes Caleb into the woods, if I'm correct, at that like at some point in the film. She doesn't really like when when they go into the woods because she sees them as a very dangerous place for the children. And they are dangerous. They are a dangerous place. And they're also where the, the witch ostensibly lives. And we see at times this some woman in a red cloak in the woods. Um, after baby Sam is kidnapped, we see the little old lady in the in the red cape going through the woods. And so the woods are also like the home of the witch, it seems like, right? And they're encroaching on her territory. They have come out to this place, to the wilderness to live, and they have to share that space with whatever is out there. And they don't have control over anything, They certainly don't have control over the crops because they're struggling to even grow anything. They're basically like starving. They have very little food and they had no control over their lives, no control over the weather or nature or anything like that. And that's scary. That's like really, really scary. That's part of the, the fear in this film for me personally is like, not having any control over your life. And the women live that for sure. Thomason and Catherine, they don't have any control over their lives. Thomason is controlled by her parents and what they tell her to do. She doesn't have any real freedom. And Catherine is controlled by William. You know, William makes the decisions in the family and she doesn't get a say in it. So there are several times in the film when we see the witch. We actually see her. I thought this was a fascinating part of the film too, where I guess Eggers could have just left it more ambiguous He could have left it to our imaginations and not shown the witch at all. And he could have implied that there was 
a supernatural explanation for things, or maybe there was a rational explanation for things. He doesn't do that. He absolutely shows us the witch. He brings that Puritan nightmare to life. We first see her when Thomason is playing peekaboo with Sam, and the baby disappears. And then we see the baby being touched by, and we see an elderly woman's hand. And then we see the little old ra- old lady in the red cloak running through the woods. After that, there's a naked woman from behind with very long hair. She's mixing something up and she then rubs it all over her body. And I think it's supposed to be blood, obviously. So she's rubbing blood, the blood of a baby, all over her body. We see another woman, I think it's a different one, putting blood on a broomstick. She's like lying down and she's putting blood on the broomstick. I don't know if this is supposed to be, I guess maybe in the film there is only one witch, I guess, and she takes many different forms possibly, or are these multiple witches? It wasn't clear to me, but I was not expecting that when I first saw the film. I was expecting something more ambiguous, something more tied to the rational or to the realism of the film. And instead, the film opens up and gives us something much more supernatural, unexpected in the realm of fantasy and folklore and fairy tale. Eggers does refer to the film as like a fairy tale or a folk tale. And so he takes us into that world. And it's the world that the Puritans themselves inhabited. And it's their imagination and their ideas about what the witch would look like or what witches did look like and what they did and the rituals they performed. And that's why they were so terrified of them because they're truly frightening in this film. You can understand the fear if you truly believed that this is what women were capable of doing who were witches, that they killed babies and put the blood all over their bodies and got on their broomstick and flew into the night There's a scene of that, I think, of a woman flying. How terrifying. It's terrifying just to watch the film, and we know that this isn't real. Can you imagine being a Puritan in the 1600s, and this is what you believe is happening? This is what's in your nightmares. This is what you're terrified of. Later in the film, Caleb and Thomason leave the farm or leave the home, and they get lost in the woods. Thomason insists on going with him to set the animal trap. And then the horse gets spooked. Thomason's thrown off of the horse. And the dog goes after a rabbit. And later on, Caleb finds the dog completely gored. And then as he's walking in the woods, he comes across this hut where this young, beautiful, voluptuous woman in this red cloak comes closer and and he gets closer and closer to her and she kisses him and she puts her hand on his head and her hand transforms into an old woman. Female sexuality was a fear. It's interesting how women's sexuality was seen as dangerous And yet, for you to have that sexuality, you were dangerous. But then when you no longer had it anymore, when you were an old woman, say, and you don't have that sexual desirability anymore, then you're seen as 
like grotesque and hideous and you're like a hag. So it's like women couldn't win. Women still can't win. So if you are young and attractive and desirable, well, you're dangerous for that, right? Because you're tempting men. But then if you lose your desirability and you're not attractive and you're no longer young, well, then you're also dangerous because you're old <laughs> and maybe you have too much knowledge or you're not married or you're widowed or something and you're gross now. You know, you're not young and beautiful and sexual, right? So again, women can't win. Women are punished either way. You're either too sexual or you're, you're not sexual or you've lost your desirability. And either way, there's a fear. Either way, there's a demonization of whatever, you know, whatever part of your life you might be in. That's what's so harmful about patriarchy. The oppression of women even today is that no matter what you do, you're not enough. If you're beautiful, that comes with problems. They'll attack you for being beautiful. If you're ugly, then you're invisible, right? And men don't want anything to do with you. If you're young, you're a temptress. If you're old, you're a hag. Where is there room in there for women to just be ourselves, to be who we are, to be all that we are? We're always some kind of like object, there's always something wrong with us. And I think that's something I've been struggling with lately is like my own feelings about all of that. My own feelings about being a woman and being trapped in this world that is so sexist and so misogynistic and so painful. It's so painful to be a woman at times, to be invisible, to be unattractive because I've talked about this time and again. I'm not seen as some beautiful woman in the world. I'm very ignored. I'm very invisible and I'm not seen as desirable and attractive. And living in this Instagram age where I'm constantly bombarded with this, where I feel like more and more women's worth is so tied to our bodies and our looks and our desirability. I think it's even worse now. I can't imagine being a teenage girl right now looking at Instagram every day looking at filtered faces and perfect bodies. I believe that being a woman is just as hard as it's ever been. And the standards that you are held to are just as bad as they've ever been. And it's the beauty standards. They are suffocating. They are so destructive and harmful. The way that we are defined by our looks and our bodies. It is not something that men are dealing with in the same way. I'm not saying men are not held to certain standards, but it is nothing on the level that women are. It is like our only definition. It really is, is our desirability. I, I really feel that way. I truly think social media has made it worse. You know, I don't mean to sound like an old fogey or something, but I'm 32 years old struggling with body image issue, issues and self-hatred and invisibility and all of that. And I just can't imagine being much younger and not knowing who you are, not having a sense of self and wanting to be found attractive and wanting to be valued and loved and cared for. And knowing that so much of so much of you is is defined by what you look like. And if you're seen as beautiful and desirable, it's brutal. You really are just never enough as you are. I realized recently 
that is a huge aspect of my life and a huge source of suffering for me is that I've always felt like I was never enough as I was. I wasn't enough for my family. I've never been enough for men. That's for sure. I've always failed these standards. I've never lived up to these standards that were expected of women. I'm not enough for this world. I'm not enough for this culture, this society. There is not a place for me where I can be valued and cared for and loved the way that I need. I haven't felt accepted. I haven't felt loved unconditionally except by my parents. I have not felt treated well in this world. And I'm still struggling with the damage of it. The self-hatred, the lack of confidence, the lack of self-esteem, the lack of love, the lack of attention. It hurts to be invisible. It hurts to not be seen. It hurts for people to not want to know you. It hurts for people to not be interested in you. It hurts for men to discard you and to not even give you a chance or want to know you as a human being. All of that hurts deeply. To not be loved, to not be considered, you know, when it comes to being in a relationship, all of it hurts. You're never enough as a woman. You're just never enough. Particularly when you're seen as unattractive or you're seen as ugly or you don't live up to those beauty standards, you will never be enough for this world. So much of our lives are defined by what we look like. And the only people who say otherwise are the beautiful people and the attractive people who have no idea what their lives are like because of their beauty. Because they've never known what it's like to not have it. And it comes with its own issues and complications. But being seen as unattractive and being invisible in the world is pretty damn painful. And it's caused a lot of suffering for me that I still struggle with. So anyways, I'm just saying that for women, we're never enough. You know, we're too beautiful. We're not beautiful enough. We're young. We're old. This, that, and the other. You'll never be enough. And I think the witch and the representation of the witch embodies a lot of that. So yeah, I just wanted to linger on the meaning of the witch, right? And all the things she's endowed with, all of the cultural meaning. They're trying to make a life in the wilderness, but they're struggling with that throughout the film. And I thought it was interesting how like the most ordinary things can become menacing in the film. A rabbit, a goat, the woods, everything was endowed with this meaning or something. Because in the Puritan imagination, like Edgar said, the real and the fantasy, the real and the fairy tale were the same. Because they did believe in things like witches and the devil and God and heaven and hell. There's like this weird mixture of the real and the fairy tale in the world of the Puritans, it seems like. They're trying to to make meaning out of their lives. They're trying to control their lives and they don't have anything. They don't have any control over it because nature is wild. Nature is uncontrollable. That's what makes it so frightening. We're always trying to control nature. And it's interesting, we call it mother nature, mother earth. And it's always, we're always trying to control it just like we're trying to control women. But nature can't be tamed. And that's what the family finds out. The longer that they're in the wilderness together, the more that they're falling apart. I mean, that's what the film's about as well. It's about this witch. It's about all these things happening. But it's also about a family falling apart. A family breaking down 
under the pressure of being on their own and they're failing. You know, they're failing at the crops. The father's failing. All he can do is like chop wood. Like their crops are terrible. They're failing at this and they're not able to provide for themselves at all. That's a part of the film as well. So I want to focus now on Thomason because I think she's such an important part of this film. She's trapped for much of the film. She has to suppress her desires. She's not even allowed to have desire. And she is going through puberty. She started her period. So her sexuality and her burgeoning womanhood is also frightening to the people around her, I think. And she starts to get blamed for the terrible things that are happening. You know, she's with Sam when he vanishes. She's with Caleb when he wanders off. And then when he's also found. It's telling that almost everything gets blamed on women. We are forced to shoulder immense burdens in this world. This is what I was talking about being a woman. We are often responsible for others and we take on the blame, right? When something happens to them. And because Thomason is present for all these things, she gets blamed. And also when she's milking the goat, she's milking this white goat and blood comes out of the udders. She becomes the scapegoat and the blame for anything out of the ordinary or strange or weird that happens. It's almost like her sexuality is seen as causing it, that because she's going through this transition from girl into woman, that that's almost seen as a trigger for these events or something like that. Her her puberty, right? Her Her burgeoning sexuality and womanhood. Her starting her period also is going to initiate her leaving the family. Catherine tells her that she is going to have to leave and serve another family eventually. And then at the end of the film, they do talk about Thomas and leaving. Well, they're going to go back to the plantation before the before the ending where they all die, right? They're going to go back to the plantation and the plan is for Thomason to get with a family that she can work for. Her entire life is just being told what to do and doing what everybody tells her to do and being like in service to everybody. She doesn't get to have her own desires, her own life. Everybody else tells her what to do. She's like a maid and a servant. And she's also very sexualized. I mean, there are times in the film when Caleb is looking at her breasts. That was really unsettling for sure to see that. And there's that scene where she's by the river and mercy comes up to them thomason and caleb are together by the river they have like a very close relationship this is when thomason threatens her i be the witch of the wood and thomason says that she was the witch who took sam she says that when she's sleeping her spirit leaves her body and she dances naked with the devil she says that she gave sam to the devil And that she'll make any man or anything she wants vanish. And this scene was interesting to me. It's a scene of power. It's a scene where Thomason is embracing the witch. Out of all the people in the family, Thomason embraces the idea of being a witch. She likes the idea. She plays with it. Everybody else is terrified of the witch, but Thomason is not. And this could be one reason why she's allowed to live at the end. We're not really sure why the witch is killing all these people in her family. In the review, the reviewer in The Atlantic, in a piece that I read, said that everybody was being killed off to save Thomason. 
you know, getting rid of the family so that Thomason can join the witches in the woods. And that is possible, right? That she's chosen for that. And also, she's the only person in the family that embraces the witch, that takes power in the idea of the witch. She's not frightened of it as much. Catherine and Caleb and Mercy and Jonas, they're scared of the witch. They're scared of the power of this this being, this supernatural being. And Thomason uses that mythology, that folklore, to gain power over Mercy in that scene by the river. She uses it to get Mercy to obey her, to let her know that if you do something wrong, if you disobey me, I can hurt you. She's using the threat of violence to gain power over this little girl. She says that she'll boil her and bake her. And then she actually physically attacks her in the scene. But it's a powerful moment where Thomason takes back some power. I mean, she does it over somebody with less power than her, a child, which is sometimes the only way that women have had power, right, is over children. But she embraces the witch. She embraces the idea of the witch for her own ends and for her own power. And I thought that was really interesting. And that is, to me, a feminist aspect of the film that Thomason resists all of this stuff. She doesn't just take it lying down, as they say. They accuse her of being a witch. They accuse her of doing this stuff at different points in the film. And Thomason pushes back and she insists, I didn't do this. I'm not a witch. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. She speaks up for herself. She stands up for herself. She doesn't just go into a ball and curl up and, you know, cry or something. She talks back, right? She talks back. She disobeys. She resists in different ways. And I think that's an interesting part of the film. I wanted to talk about Thomason and Catherine because this is a rare film where we see matricide. And you don't often see matricide in films. And I think Thomason and Catherine are interesting figures in showing us what life was like for Puritan women back in like the 17th century. I think Catherine is a really sympathetic character. She's obviously grief-stricken about Sam. And then Caleb, obviously, um, when he goes missing and then later dies, she's in a lot of emotional pain and suffering for much of the film. And Catherine feels like there's something amiss where they've gone to live, where they've moved. And she thinks that they're being punished for leaving the plantation. She thinks they're cursed. She suffers a lot because Sam, the baby, was not baptized. And the father never took him to get baptized. So now she believes that Sam, her her baby, is in hell. And this is something that torments her. Because this is something they really believed by them. Catherine wants to be home in England. When Caleb is sick and they're nursing him... She cries a lot and she says that her heart has turned to stone ever since Sam disappeared. You feel this woman's grief very deeply. You feel through her, you feel the fear and terror that is caused by these mysterious, inexplicable happenings. She says that when she was Thomason's age, she felt a very deep connection to Christ. I think she's saying this to William in the film. But ever since Sam disappeared, she's lost her faith and she doesn't feel the same amount of love for Christ. I thought that was a bit of a bombshell because she's such a pious woman. But then she admits that what's happening to them has broken her and it's taken her faith from her. 
And I thought that was such a heartbreaking admission from her, that she confesses that she no longer feels that deep faith and that deep connection. Them being exiled and them going to live in the wilderness for the father's pride, he doesn't like where they were living. It's like it wasn't religious enough for him or it wasn't like extreme enough for him. He has a lot of pride. And because of that, where they go out to live and they do this, and then their children start dying. And she has no power over it as a woman. She can't say, oh, I don't want to move out there. She doesn't get a choice. She doesn't get an option. So after Caleb dies, they really accuse Thomas. And, you know, Jonas and Mercy start to act up. I think Mercy talks about the scene at the river when Thomason says that she was a witch, right? You know, one of the terrifying things about this film is the experience of being accused of something you have not done, of being accused of witchcraft that you haven't committed, which is what happens to Thomason. And it reminds us that women throughout history went through this, where they were not responsible for the disease and all of the stuff that was happening in their villages but they became the scapegoat for those things. And in a way, to me, Thomason represents a lot of these women from history, a lot of these witches who were burned and murdered for centuries, being accused of crimes they did not commit, and they are murdered for those crimes. Being accused of being a witch is what leads to their death. Interestingly enough, Thomason doesn't die because she joins the witches. It's actually a rebirth for her. It's a new life for her. That's what's so amazing to me about the ending. It's so delicious, right? And it's a rebirth. It's her actually living. Whereas in the past, witchcraft led to the death of so many women. For Thomason, it's life-affirming when she joins the coven. I love it. I love the power that it has. I love the gathering of women, the coming together of, of women. And I'll talk more about the ending. So Thomason is accused of all of this stuff that she did not do. There's such a powerlessness and helplessness. You know, her mother thinks she did it. Her father comes to think she did it after Kate. I mean, after Caleb's death, he's questioning her and he encourages her to confess and she keeps insisting she hasn't done anything wrong, and no one believes her. She even blames Jonas and Mercy at one point. She's that desperate to take the accusation off of her. And so I think it's very frightening, the idea that you would become a scapegoat and you would be accused of a crime that you didn't commit and then be punished for it, potentially. You know, Thomason is as innocent as everyone in the family, but because she's a young woman, she's thought to be inherently evil and wicked and harmful. It's something she has no power to stop because of the patriarchal world that she inhabits. And this was part of the experience of being a woman in the 1600s. You could be accused of witchcraft by anyone at any time for any reason. Your life was not your own. Your life wasn't in your control. And her family turns against her. Not only is she watching all this happen, all these horrible things happening, these people dying, but then they've turned their backs on her as well. But like I said, she resists and she, fight, she fights back. She says she hasn't done anything wrong. She even brings up her father's hypocrisy about stealing Catherine's silver cup and lying about it. She even tells him, you know, you let mother be your master. 
She tells him he can't hunt. He can't bring the crops in. She's questioning his authority and even his masculinity in that scene near the end. She is speaking up for herself. She's talking back. She's not letting them do this to her without a fight. She's putting up a fight. And he even calls her a bitch. Her own father calls her a bitch in that scene when she questions his authority and masculinity. She accuses Jonas and Mercy of being the witches, of being of having a covenant with the with the devil, I think, and that they've caused all of this. And so then the end comes and the father's killed you know, they they bury Caleb. The father gets killed by Black Philip, the goat, right? We see the witch again milking the goat. Um, she has like this very old face. She turns around and she cackles and all of that. We see Catherine holding a bird that pecks at her breast. I did not even know what to make of that imagery. I will be honest. But then the father is gored by Black Philip and is killed. Catherine comes out and her and Thomason start to fight and she says that Thomason's a witch, that she's made a pact with the devil. And then she physically attacks Thomason and they're on the ground. Catherine is strangling her daughter. She's strangling Thomason and Thomason has to fight back and hit her in the head. And like all this blood starts to, to come out and to spray everywhere. Thomason is covered in her own mother's blood. It's this very shocking moment of violence and matricide of killing her own mother, right? Killing this woman who has accused her of being a witch and threatening her. And now Thomason's completely alone. The witch took the twins. The father was killed by Black Philip. Caleb was killed. Sam was killed. And she killed her own mother. She kills Catherine. And so now she's alone. But really, she always was alone. At this point in the film, at the ending, what's left for her? I mean, she'll surely die on her own. So when she goes to be with the witches, the witches beckon to her with a new life, an escape to another life, escape to another world. I love the ending where she she goes to the hut at night. She sees Black Philip, and he says, what dost thou want? We hear the man's voice for the first time. It's the devil. It's the devil. He asks if she'd like to, the taste of butter, a pretty dress. And then he says, wouldst thou like to live deliciously? I love that. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to live deliciously? I love this scene. And yeah, you could say, oh, well, the devil's a man. And a man is saving her or she's making a pact with the devil with a man in order to you know get liberated or something I guess right but I don't care about that as much I care about the coven I really do I think the witch in this film embodies so many things but I think she also embodies pleasure and hedonism a life of fulfilled desire, a life of appetites satisfied. The witch is sexualized even as she is monstrous, as I said earlier. She's old and ugly, but strangely sexualized at the same time. What this means is that she's not afraid of the carnal. She delights in pleasure. I think that's also what makes her so frightening. The Puritans were very self-sacrificing, 
they denied themselves, right? They denied themselves pleasure often. Pleasure was seen as sinful. So the witch delights in pleasure. She enjoys violence and destruction as well. She delights in that. It's not enough that the witch is viewed as violent. She also has to take satisfaction in it. This is what the Puritans, this is how they construct her, right? It's almost orgasmic for her to commit violence. She doesn't just kill a baby. She rubs the blood on her body. Like, that's strangely sexual. I mean, think about, like, instead of putting lotion on your body or something, you're putting blood on your body. She's taking pleasure in the blood and the violence. So there's something about the witch that is also carnal and is also tied to pleasure. Even when she's doing something bad or violent, she's taking pleasure in it. And the pleasure is also subversive. The pleasure is also dangerous to feel any kind of pleasure. Because as a woman, you're the daughter of Eve. You're sinful You should be in pain in childbirth. You should be punished for what you've done. Women should always be in pain and punished in this era, right? In this period. So the witch represents pleasure as well. Yeah, she's violent and scary, but she's also all about pleasure and delight. And that's also pretty radical and dangerous and subversive. Witches were women who had knowledge of women's bodies and of their own bodies. And they reveled in the sensual. That's also what comes through, I think, in these representations. And so that's what the coven, I think, represents. Living deliciously, feeling pleasure, being hedonistic, having desires and fulfilling your desires instead of denying yourself. And Thomason says that she would like to live deliciously. Ugh, who wouldn't? Wouldst thou like to see the world, he asks her. And Black Philip is now a man. She removes her dress. The book is put before her that she has to sign in order to make her pact with the devil. And he says that he'll guide her hand in order to write her name. And then in the same woods that we saw before and throughout the film, these very frightening, scary woods that were always a sight for something terrifying or horrible, now we see Thomason naked walk into those woods with Black Philip behind her. And now the woods are a place of, yes, mystery, but also the gathering of women. And there's not just darkness now, there's this bonfire. And there's not just silence, there's women shouting and yelling. So there's light and there's life and there's women together. There's a community that Thomason is going to join. She's no longer alone. She's with other women. She's in a world of women. She's not in the darkness anymore. She's also with all this light, this bonfire, this warmth, right? And all these women. So she goes deep into the woods and she finds the coven, the women around the bonfire chanting and convulsing and singing. She watches them as they begin to levitate into the air. And she starts to levitate too with this big smile on her on her face. And she's laughing. She hasn't laughed like the whole film hardly. Her life has been so hard. There's been such drudgery and oppression and deprivation. Her life has been defined by deprivation. She's laughing. 
She's entering a space of freedom where being a woman is no longer sinful or dirty. She's entering a space of power and pleasure and liberation. That's what it felt like to me. And it was beautiful to watch. I was so affected by this ending in a way that I wasn't the first time. Maybe because of stuff going on in my life where I am struggling in my life. I'm struggling with loneliness and feeling like I am invisible. I'm not appreciated. I have a lot of stress. I have a lot of burdens. I have a lot of responsibilities. My life is really hard right now and I don't know how to cope with it at times or most of the time and at times I want to be free. I just want to be free. I don't even know what that means anymore but I know that I'm not fully free and she is free. She's free of the Puritans She's free of the very earth as she gravitates above it. Gravity no longer has any meaning for her. And some primal part of me longs for this kind of thing. Just pure freedom from this world that oppresses me. From my body and my sex and my desire. A world that makes me hate myself at every turn. I want to be free. Like Thomason. That's what I see in this ending is freedom. Is liberation. Not even the earth can hold her down anymore. Nothing can hold her down. Her burdens are gone. She's floating. She is floating. Thomason is unchained and unleashed. She never has to go back to the plantation or to a family that attacked and condemned her. She's one with the sky. She can melt into the sky. She's up in the treetops. She's above the treetops. She can no longer be controlled or dominated. She is her own now. She belongs only to herself and no one can tell her what to do. So to me, it's just, it's a scene of freedom, of pure liberation. And I think it it's beautiful. I think it gives us possibilities or something in our own lives. Like maybe one day we can have that freedom that we seek. I love how she's free of the earth. She is free of the world. She is levitating. She is floating above it. She's gone. And so are the other women who are in the coven. They're free of it too. They're levitating it. They're levitating above it. You know, in this world, as women, we're never enough, no matter what we do. And I think that weighs us down a lot. We never feel like we're enough. And so I just loved this coven. I loved her going into the woods I loved her embracing a life of living deliciously and being free, right? I just loved it. It was so liberating. It gave me some kind of hope. It gave me joy. It just lifted me up to see that, to see these women together, her joining the coven and her being free, free of the, of the family that treated her so horribly, free from a world that would burn her at the stake for anything that she had done or what they thought she did. They would murder her. They would murder her. That's what the world would do to her. And this is life. This is a rebirth. This is another chance for her to actually live, to live deliciously instead of rotting away on the plantation as some kind of maid or whatever, or possibly being burned at the stake for witchcraft. She is free. She's free from all of that. And it's so, it was very feminist to me. It was very beautiful. More than anything, it was beautiful. And it took me full circle to the burning times 
she escapes. She's not going to be burned. She, The women who were burned at the stake, they couldn't levitate. They weren't real witches, right? They couldn't escape their persecution. They couldn't escape their murder, their execution, right? They could not levitate. They could not save themselves. But Thomason is saved. Thomason floats above the earth, and she's free of that society. She's free of that violence. And it just took me full circle. The women who were burned, the women who were destroyed, the women who were silenced. And here's Thomason, and she's reborn as a witch, right? And she feels powerful and alive and liberated and free with the coven and with other witches. And I just love that. I love the whole idea of that, that she can't be burned. She can't be destroyed because she's free and she escaped it. And you wish that you could go back. I wish I could go back all these centuries and go back to those burnings and put the fire out. I wish I could open up the jail cells where all those women were kept and where they were tortured and free all of those women. And even today, I wish that I could go and free every woman in this world. Free her from physical violence, from you know the, the very real violence that women around the world go through. And also free us from the emotional shackles. The way that we feel about ourselves and our bodies and all of that. And the ways that we are oppressed and hurt and kept down by the world. I wish I could free all of us. I wish I could take off those shackles for all women everywhere. And that we could be free like Thomason. We could live deliciously in a world where we were respected and revered and valued and appreciated and loved. The way that those early goddesses were. The way that the goddesses in the pre-Christian times were worshipped. The way that the women were revered for their knowledge and their healing abilities and then here comes the all this stuff to destroy that and to kill these women but they can't be destroyed we can't be destroyed we're still here we're still trying to heal we're still trying to live we're still trying to get free and we're still trying to be treated like human beings we're still trying to have freedom on this earth right We're still trying so hard as feminists to make the world a better place for women. The fight never ends. It never ends. And a film like this, the ending was just so powerful to me as a feminist and as somebody who wants real freedom and real liberation, you know, to just see this depiction of it, this representation of it. Like I wanted to be her. I wanted to just melt into the sky, just be one with the sky. I loved every minute of it. It almost made me cry when I watched her float into the sky. I just wanted that for myself. I just want to feel free. I want to feel like I'm enough. I want to feel love for who I am. I loved this film. I hope you liked my discussion of it. But it just felt full circle back to the burning times. Back to what I had learned about all those women who were burned and murdered. And Thomason escapes. She escapes. She gets out of it. She is saved and reborn. She gets another chance, and she gets to escape her oppression, and escape her terrible family, right? And to have a new life where she can live deliciously. That's what I want. (laughs) So, yeah, I've gone on long enough. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Polina, Stephen, Peter, Spunden, 
Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Olivia, Jesse, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Bye for now. Until next time, keep watching great films.